Okay, welcome everyone uh, to this uh, EPP group uh, talk here in the European Parliament in Strasbourg uh, on foreign policy, on the challenges, the global challenges facing the European Union. And uh, joining us is David McAllister, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee here in the European Parliament. Welcome, David. Thank you. Um, you are also delegate uh, to the NATO Assembly, delegate uh, to the EU-UK Parliamentary uh, assembly as well. So a lot of issues that we could cover, depending on how much time we have. Now, just moments ago, in fact, just a few meters away, uh, was uh, Alexei Navalny's daughter who came to accept the Sakharov Prize for freedom of thought, uh, which the European Parliament gives away every year. And you were there. You, I think you were also uh, before that, also meeting uh, with uh, his daughter, uh, among other uh, members of parliament. How did it feel to accept, to see her accept that prize while Mr. Navalny, uh, the Russian opposition leader, uh, is behind bars? Well, first of all, I very much welcome that the European Parliament has given this year's Sakharov Prize to Alexei Navalny. That is the right signal at the right time. Uh, we are showing our totally committed support towards those people in Russia, like Alexei Albany, who are very courageous and very brave, fighting for democracy, the rule of law, human rights, and also fighting against corruption. Unfortunately, Mr. Navalny is imprisoned. Uh, we, of course, as European Parliament, call for his immediate release, like all other arbitrarily detained prisoners should be released uh, in Russia. So his daughter was here, Daria Navalnaya, wonderful young lady, 20 years old, a student in California, and Mr. Navalny's head of office, Leonid Volkov. And I must say, Daria Navalnaya gave an impressive speech in front of a plenary. Um, we as the EPP supported this year's Sakharov Prize for Mr. Navalny. And after this speech, I even more am convinced that this was the right decision. Now, and, and uh, I, I see that she asked her father what she should tell this body. And she said uh, that he, he told her not to associate Russians with the Putin regime or say that, that, that Russia is not the Putin regime. How did you take that? Well, indeed, there's more to Russia than the Kremlin to Mr. Putin and his friends in his regime. There is a much broader Russia, a better Russia. And that's why it's important for us that we reach out to civil society, to universities, to businesses, all those people who want to live in a country where you have media freedom, where you can have different political views, that you can criticize politicians without being jailed. Uh, and that's why I would always be very principled in dealing with the Kremlin. Of course, we need to seek for dialogue, dealing with certain uh, issues. We can't choose uh, our uh, Russian leadership in the moment, but it's more important that we strengthen civil society contacts and that as many Russians as possible spend some time, for instance, in EU countries, because then they understand what it means to live in an open, tolerant and fair society. Yeah, that's kind of how it worked with us, Politik, during the Cold War. But um, at the moment, we're all watching to see what the Russians do with their military buildup uh, on the border with Ukraine. And there are already 
sanctions in place uh, by the European Union and uh, by other uh, international actors uh, against Russia to pressure them over uh, various issues, including uh, the annexation of Crimea, for instance. Um, what other sanctions are in the offing if the Russian forces are sent in to Ukraine, which many people are worried about? For years now, the Kremlin is challenging our European values and also our European interests. And this has started a negative uh, spiral, uh, which we need to uh, stop. We are not happy that our relations with Russia are as bad as they are in the moment. And we call on Russia to stop this kind of behavior, not only internally, with the crackdown on the opposition, the oppression of, of other liberal democratic forces. But it's also about a very assertive, assertive Russian foreign policy. It's about cyber attacks. It's about fake news. It's about disinformation campaigns. And of course, Russia is responsible, or to be more precise, the Kremlin is responsible for the most serious violation of international law since 1945 in Europe with the illegal annexation of Crimea. And we call on Russia respect the territorial sovereignty and integrity of your neighbors. This is, should be something very normal in a rules-based order, but it isn't. And we have been very clear that Russia needs to know if there are further attacks on Ukraine, this will have serious consequences, diplomatic consequences, and further sanctions would be put in place already. A, a number of sanctions are already have been put in place, but we are ready to really show our solidarity with Ukraine. No country deserves to be bullied by Putin's Russia. And so what other sanctions could be there? I mean, some people talk about other economic sanctions, turning up the screws on that, including on the on the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. There, There's all kinds of talk about options here. What are the options? Well, I still hope that we don't have to put further sanctions into place and that Mr. Putin really understands that NATO and EU are very united in their approach, showing solidarity with Ukraine. And that the first thing is what we now need to see is that Russia makes sure that there is more transparency about the military operations at the Russian-Ukrainian border. Mm and that there cannot be any kind of military solution to this conflict. We need dialogue, but we have to be firm on our positions. Now, there are a huge wide range of economic sanctions which would be possible yeah. also to target further individuals, asset freezing, travel bans. I mean, we have the wide range. I like the Magnitsky uh, measures against focusing and targeting on certain individuals, right? Well, since December 2020, we have this new global human rights sanction regime in the European Union. And it was probably no coincidence that the first four individuals who were targeted by this sanction regime were actually Russian individuals who were associated with the uh, imprisonment and of Mr. Navalny. When it comes to um, Nord Stream 2, uh, this pipeline has now been fully constructed. The construction has been accomplished. Um, as a German citizen, I must say that at the beginning of this project, the geopolitical consequences were certainly underestimated, and we need to take the concerns of our Eastern European partners and neighbors very, very seriously. In the end, it will be a legal and political question for the German government, for the new German government, to answer whether this project complies with national 
and European law. And regulations, right? And regulations. I'll give you one example. Uh, the Bundesnetzagentur, that is the, uh, the German network regulator, just stated last month that uh, Nord Stream 2 in the moment is not compliant and has suspended its procedure to certify the operator. So in the moment, we're a bit over here in a limbi, lim limbo. One thing I absolutely agree is this project will need to fully comply with existing European energy legislation. Let's talk about sanctions toward Belarus as well. Uh, we just saw the conviction uh, and sentencing to 18 years in prison of uh, of uh, Mr. Tikhanovskaya, who, Ms. Tikhanovsky, uh, and his wife, Madame Tisk Tikhanovskaya, uh, is uh, has uh, been very much uh, active in in uh, campaigning for his freedom. Um, what's the next step here as far as sanctions, as far as, as far as EU action that should be taken to pressure the Belarus government of Lukashenko uh, to free this man? Well, the status court ruling is outrageous. It has received international criticism throughout the whole world. And we call on Mr. Lukashenko, who in the moment heads the regime in Minsk, that he should stop oppressing his own people. He should stop imprisoning journalists, opposition representatives, people who dare to speak their mind, who dare to criticize uh, Mr. Lukashenko. Uh, the elections in 2020 were rigged. We don't accept the result. We don't accept the government. We don't recognize the government in Minsk. And a number of rounds of sanctions have been put in place. We have to be as tough as possible on this dictator. Uh, Belarus is a fantastic country, but this regime has to go. Because there are already sanctions in place regarding potash, regarding flights, uh, airlines. What more could be done at this point? I think that's a big question. Well, I think it's very important as regards sanctions that we hit hard those people in the regime who are responsible for human rights violations, they need to know we are observing what they are doing and that they will not be able to travel freely in Europe, that we can freeze their assets, that we can do many things more. But on the other hand, we have to make sure that the economic sanctions don't increase the hardship mm -hmm. the brave Belarusian people are already undergoing. Let's turn to Afghanistan and the pullout from Afghanistan. What lessons have we learned as Europeans learned about that, that pullout uh, and what steps to take as a result? I very much regret the developments in Afghanistan. We were, as the West, very successful in fighting terrorism. We defeated Al-Qaeda. The military operation was successful, but we didn't succeed in our nation building uh, process. And now the Taliban are back in power in Kabul. We need to learn, we need to learn lessons from this. And the one thing is that the failure in Afghanistan has shown the weaknesses we as Europeans have when it comes to milita effective military operations. It was a US decision to leave Afghanistan very quickly. And then there was, for a short time, for a few days, there was a debate in Europe, would we be able 
to secure and protect Kabul airport for a few more days or weeks mm. to get more people out to help people who are very much in danger and vulnerable. Yeah, where did that go? And in the end, Europeans realized we're not even able to secure an airport in Kabul for a week on our own without American support. Mm. So this shows that we are heavily dependent on decisions our United States allies take. And I am very much in favor of a strong transatlantic alliance, and the United States are our most important ally. But we Europeans need to be put in a position that we can take some of our decisions on our own. We need to get our act together. And that's why I call for a more effective European foreign policy. And this includes strengthening the European pillar within the transatlantic cooperation. And this also means that apart from all the soft power we have as Europeans, we need some hard power. And this includes building up certain European military capabilities. Because I've, um, there's, uh, I've read something from a, a professor in the UK who makes the argument that the EU could and should have stayed on the ground there for a certain amount of time, at least, uh, to ensure humanitarian shipments, to ensure the uh, the uh, the transfer of people out of the country, um, and and we didn't. Uh, but you're saying that we didn't have the capability. Well, there were calls to stay longer in yeah. the United Kingdom. I also heard some of these calls in Germany, but uh, very soon everyone realized in Europe, even if we wanted, we couldn't. And that is our dilemma. And that's why we have to do something here. In the end, it's about strategic sovereignty. It's about strategic autonomy. We need to be able to take our own decisions in the moment we are too heavily dependent on the United States. Now, as long as we absolutely agree with the US, it's fine. But, But we've seen under President Trump but also now under President Biden, we will not always be of the same opinion in the United States and in Europe. And that's why we need to do more for our own security and defense. Okay. Um, and what about dealing with the Taliban? Because there is this growing humanitarian crisis. That there, a lot of people are suffering over there because there's not enough food. There's, uh, there's a lack of funding. How to deal with that and, and yet not to validate some of the policies that the Taliban uh, uh, government has. Talking to the Taliban doesn't mean recognizing the Taliban. Uh, We do not recognize the Taliban government in Kabul, but we have to take note of that in the moment they are de facto in power. And exactly to discuss these serious issues like the humanitarian crisis, which is obviously going to come up, we need to deal. We need to talk to the Taliban because we want to help the people in Afghanistan. And this upcoming humanitarian crisis is of huge concern also for us in Europe. Should we talk about post-Brexit at this point? And um, the, the situation now in the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, what is the EU position at this point? I mean, how, how concerned are you that the UK could abandon that protocol? In two and a half weeks, the United Kingdom will have left the European Union, or not the European Union, but the single market and the customs union uh, for exactly a year. And where are we? In the moment, our relations are a bit bumpy. Uh, On the one hand, 
with the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement, we have two solid pillars for our new relationship. And we as a European Union want to be as close as possible uh, in working with our neighbor, ally and trade partner, the United Kingdom. But both sides have committed to implement certain points. And one of the points where we have different views is the situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland is an essential part of the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. And we call on the UK government to fulfill all the obligations stemming from the protocol. For us in the European Union, and I've been very clear here for us as EPP, the protocol is not the problem. The problem is Brexit. The protocol is trying to solve all the Brexit-related difficulties we are facing in Northern Ireland. Okay. Um, so, so you think it just would require some modifications or some um, compromises, perhaps, on both sides? Anything specific that you have in mind on that? I see, I see there's a question of medicines, for instance. These are very concrete issues about medicines to Northern Ireland. How, how can that be solved? Well, Commission Vice President Marashevchevich and his team are in talks with Lord Frost and his team. It's very important to say it's about talks. It's not about renegotiation. We are not renegotiating the protocol. It's about finding flexible and pragmatic solutions within the framework of the protocol. The Commission has shown its readiness to really try to facilitate everyday life for Northern Irish citizens and businesses. We are ready to be as flexible, we are ready to be as pragmatic as possible, but certain rules have to be followed by both sides. And one thing also needs to be said very outspokenly, the European Court of Justice will always be the last arbitrator for interpreting a single market law. And Northern Ireland in the moment is more or less included in the single market. At least it has access, it has um, uh, access free, or it has free access for goods to the world's largest single market. I believe that the current situation in Northern Ireland could actually be beneficial for Northern Irish businesses because on the one hand, they are part of the United Kingdom, part of the British single market, but on the other hand, for goods, they have access to the world's largest single market crossing the border to the Republic. So almost the best of both worlds in that sense. Um, but, but we also see concessions from the UK side on the fishing issue, giving more fishing licenses to, to, to French uh, fisheries. Um, so do you see that issue now sort of calming down because we, we saw uh, some conflicts at sea even? Yes, well, we did see some conflicts between uh, French and British authorities about fishing lines around the Channel Islands. I think in recent days and weeks, things have started to calm down. I'm also noticing that the tone in London is changing a bit. They're becoming slightly softer, not so assertive. And this is the way forward. Look, Brexit is a historic failure. It's, it's a historic mistake. And we all regret that the United Kingdom has left the European Union, but let's try and make the best out of it. And this should also be in the interest of the UK government. Uh, there's um, another issue about uh, uh, piracy, uh, about uh, the Gulf of Guinea, uh, that there, that was, uh, it's been kind of a success, right? I think on, on uh, fighting piracy by EU ships patrolling uh, the, the, that, the Gulf. Um, of Guinea off of Africa. Um, do you see that applied in other places as well? Um, 
perhaps I think the Indo-Pacific, that is, that is one, also an example where that is Atalanta, that is uh, the operation that is, uh, is said to be rather successful. Do you see a greater reach on that, uh, in that regard, uh, in different places in the world for the EU? The operation in the Gulf of Guinea fighting piracy has been a success. And also Operation Atalanta at the Horn of Africa has been a success. So we should learn from this. This is where the EU can really contribute to our collective security and defense. And our trade too. I mean, right? It helps to... Well, indeed. And I, I have just uh, presented my first draft report on a uh, security strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And one of my proposals is that we should learn from these piracy operations uh, in at the Horn of Africa and the Gulf of Guinea, that this could also be a role model for further EU operations together with like-minded partners, for instance, in the Indian Ocean. Because we as a trade superpower are interested that we have a free and open Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Ocean. Right, to keep our trade flowing. I have a question in coming in here. Uh, Putin is uh, from uh, Anna Ani Dovishki. Uh, Putin is supporting a division of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, Dodik, president of the Republic uh, Srpska, has visited Moscow more than ten times this year. What is the response of the European Parliament to Putin's attempts to destabilize the Balkan region? I mean, there are tensions there between the the, the ethnic Serbs uh, and uh, and uh, the Muslim minority as well. Across party lines here in the European Parliament, we have been very clear in our sharp criticism of Mr. Dodik's activities in the Republika Srpska. We call on all sides involved in Bosnia-Herzegovina to respect the integrity and the sovereignty of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we call on all sides involved to work on a Bosnia-Herzegovina that functions and a Bosnia-Herzegovina which has a clear European perspective. Bosnia-Herzegovina is very complex. Three constituent people, Bosniak Serbs and Croats, two entities, one country, mm -hmm. and we respect all sides involved. And here we are calling on Mr. Dodik and his parliamentary majority and the government in Banja Luka to respect the Dayton Paris peace agreement. Because it's important to ev eventually integrate the Balkans into the EU. We have it's 20 million consumers, right? It's, but it's not for tomorrow. All six Western Balkan countries have a clear European perspective. All six countries are on their way towards EU membership, but they're going at very different uh, speed. Uh, the front runners are uh, Montenegro and Serbia, where the accession negotiations are ongoing. Then we have North Macedonia and Albania that are waiting for the accession negotiations to begin. A different case is Bosnia-Herzegovina. For many, many reasons, this country in the moment is in a political deadlock. We just discussed this. And Kosovo, of course, faces the challenge that in the moment, five EU countries do not recognize Kosovo as an independent state. But the heads of government were very clear in Saloniki nearly 20 years ago. Mm. And since then, they have always confirmed at this position, all countries in the Western Balkans have a European perspective. And I welcome this because this part of Europe is surrounded by EU member states. There is no region which is historically, politically, culturally so closely interlinked with EU member states. Stability 
prosperity and peace in the Western Balkans means stability, peace and prosperity for us all in Europe. But the mm. final point, to become a member of the European Union, you need to do your homework. Yeah. It's hard work and that's why all political, economic and legal criteria need to be met by candidate countries. I, I, I covered uh, the conflicts in, uh, in Kosovo and uh, in Macedonia and from afar in Bosnia. And it, it, it was uh, absolutely tragic. And we saw the blowback as far as uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees who went to uh, the EU uh, during that conflict. How concerned are you that things could blow up again? And how can we keep that from happening? It's in our own European interest that we contribute to peace and stability, to reconciliation in the Western Balkans. I know there is so much history at stake in this part of Europe, in this part of the world. And we all know, not only from the events in 1914, what can happen Indeed. for the whole continent if things start to explode in the Western Balkans. That's why we want to support these countries. We want to support the people. We want to support these countries modernizing their economies, modernizing their public administration. And the European Union has always been fostering politicians who are in favor of reconciliation, of good neighborly relations uh, and others. Um, we always have ups and downs in the Balkans. In the moment, my largest concern is actually what's happening in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm -hmm. That is a very a serious situation and we call on uh, Mr. Dodik to return to the negotiating table. Uh, this conflict needs to be solved uh, in dialogue. But having dealt with Bosnia-Herzegovina myself a bit, it is an extremely complex country. Indeed. Um, final thought perhaps on the meeting of the uh, heads of state, the, the European Council uh, later this week. What are your expectations? What would you like to see come out of that regarding foreign policy? Well, as a German citizen, first of all, I want to note it's the first European Council meeting for the new Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, so all eyes will be on him. I do hope that the German Chancellor will quickly understand that Germany plays a very important role in the European Union as largest country and something Angela Merkel was always committed to was being a bridge builder between the north, the south, the west and the east, the smaller, the medium sized and the larger countries. And that this new government quickly has to become in a similar way active at the European level, like Angela Merkel's administration was. Uh, European leaders will discuss all the major issues also on foreign policy. Um, I think that there will also how to deal with Russia yeah. as regards Ukraine, other issues will be on the table. But I think that this European Council has also been well prepared by the foreign ministers who met this week on Monday. David McAllister, head of the Foreign Relations Committee here uh, in the European Parliament. Thank you so much. Thank you too. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all uh, for watching uh, and uh, more information uh, on uh, the EPP Group's activities on eppgroup.eu. Follow the group on uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram, and uh, with the handle at EPP Group. My name is Chris Burns. Thanks for tuning in and watching us. See you next time.